what, a, what an amazing gift, Father, that we celebrate this Christmas season. That though we are broken, though we are unworthy, when we are weary, when we are helpless, when we feel lost and disconnected, Lord, Christ has come for us. He's come to restore our brokenness, to help our hopelessness, to provide peace in the midst of all of life's trials. And this morning as we examine your word, I pray, Lord, that we would see the beauty of this perfect King, King Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> As you know, for this, uh, this Christmas Advent season, we're going through the book of Psalms. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 72 this morning, Psalm 72. And for, for most of human history, we have, as humanity, we've built civilizations. And, and with those groups of civilizations, typically we have a king, right? A king would rule over, whether you call him a Caesar or a czar or king, he was the one who would rule. And each civilization wanted a king that was good, a king that was powerful, a king that was kind. Now, unfortunately, for many of those civilizations, those kings were not good and kind. They may have been powerful, but with that power comes corruption and tyranny. And this isn't just true for kings and kingdoms. All people at all times who are governed by those want to be governed by those who have their best interest at heart. We all long for governmental overseers who are kind and compassionate and loving toward their people, while at the same time being powerful enough to overcome enemies and provide protection against foreign invaders without following, following into corruption or withering away. And the truth is this has never happened. We've never had a government quite like the one that we idealize in our minds. Even good rulers and good governments have only lasted for minuscule amounts of times. Kings have been replaced. Kingdoms have rose to power and collapsed in chaos. It is the cycle of humanity. And at times, especially when we look at the world around us, the hope for a perfect king and a perfect kingdom seems like a fairy tale. It seems so out of reach. Like this kind of thing can never happen and will never happen. In fact, this longing for a good, a good and perfect ruler is why the psalm that we are going to look at this morning, and it's why we're looking at this psalm, is because it's pointing toward that good king. The king spoken of in Psalm chapter 72 is the one who is going to bring peace, prosperity, justice, mercy, and righteousness, not just to his kingdom, but to the entirety of the earth. And this may seem like a pipe dream. However, we believe and we hope in the fact that there will one day be a perfect and irreplaceable king that will reign over all of creation. When Jesus comes to rule and reign on earth, every wrong will be made right. All corruption will cease. The world will be filled with peace and prosperity, justice, mercy, and righteousness. When King Jesus comes to rule and reigns the heaven and the earth will be made new. Corruption will be no more. And since this hasn't happened yet, we have to wait. We have to wait for it. I love what this uh, 
this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian in the 1940s in Germany, and he, was, he ended up being put to death by the Nazi party. But this is what he wrote about Advent. He said the Advent season, right, the Christmas season, is a season of waiting. But our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent or the second coming for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So though this Advent season is for a short time, right? Four weeks that we look forward to the celebrating the birth of Jesus. Our whole life is looking forward to the time when Jesus comes back to rule and reign as king. Advent, the Christmas season, makes us look, look at and long for that perfect established kingdom under the rule of the perfect king, Jesus. And Psalm 72 helps us to see what this new kingdom is going to look like clearly. If you look at the title of this psalm, in most translations it says, For Solomon or of Solomon. It could also read any of those because that preposition used in the Hebrew can be a multiplicity of things. But here's what I think when I'm reading this psalm. The psalm is for Solomon, written by his father, King David. David is lying on his deathbed, and he's writing the psalm in hopes that Solomon's reign looks like the one that we're going to look at in Psalm 72. The way the psalm is, is structured and the way it reads is very similar to a prayer that David would pray, an intercessory prayer that he would pray over his son who is about to reign. But spoiler alert, Solomon's reign isn't like that one that is read in chapter 72 of Psalms. Solomon is a good king. He has some bright spots, but he gets corrupted by power, money, and women. And David knows that there is no earthly king that is going to fit the bill of chapter 72. Nevertheless, he prays for his son while also longing for the best and greater king. So this psalm is for Solomon, and it also foreshadows a greater king. No king that reigned in Israel fits the description of the one written here in, in Psalm 72. So we look forward to the day when this is completely fulfilled in King Jesus. But before we look at what this, the Psalm 72 has to say, let's pray real quick. Father God, thank you so much for your love and your grace. Comfort our hearts as we long for this, cre this, this recreated kingdom. Provide for us peace and comfort in the midst of the struggles of life, knowing that we have hope in Jesus, knowing that hope has a name and his name is Jesus, that we look forward to the day when he comes to reestablish his perfect kingdom. And as we examine Psalm 72, help us to see the goodness and the greatness of the eternal majestic king. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 72 verses one through four says this, God, give justice, give your justice to the king and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring well-being to the peoples, to the people and the hills, righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted among the people, help the poor and crush the oppressor. The first thing we see here is that these opening verses is requesting of God a righteous ruler, the righteous rule. This is a prayer for God's righteousness and justice to be given to the son. It's an interesting request, right? 
The psalmist knows that, not, that only goodness and justice and righteousness comes from God alone. He's very deliberate with his words. Did you see that? Give your justice and your righteousness. These qualities of justice and righteousness alone belong to the Lord. He is the giver and the grantor of these gifts. And it is only through him that a ruler has the attributes that, that, that he, we want him to possess of goodness and righteousness. Living in submission to God, to listen and obey the instruction of the Lord will grant one the ability to live in righteousness and justice. If the king wants to judge the people with righteousness and distribute justice throughout the land, he must look past himself to the Lord. He must consult and submit to the law of the Lord, to the rule and the tr- of the true king of kings and the Lord of lords. He must consult and submit himself to the Lord. The law of the Lord must always be before him as he examines his people. As he looks to grant justice and righteousness to the people, he must draw from himself or from the perfect and well of justice and righteousness from God himself. Also the king that has been given the wisdom of the Lord following after him, he will protect those who are afflicted. He wants to promote justice to those who have been wronged. His desire is to crush the oppressor to bring oppre- to because oppression is not justice, to bring justice to the oppressor by crushing him. David's prayer is that the king wants to set the right, right the wrongs of the world, correct tyranny and oppression, and not just correct it, but stomp it out. Why? Because oppression and affliction are wicked. And to follow the Lord means to vindicate those who have been wronged. Next year at the beginning of January, we're going to start a sermon series through the book of Luke. And this is one of the key themes throughout Luke's gospel. Luke is writing to those who are oppressed, showing that Jesus came to set the wrongs right. And even in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, Jesus tells us that this was his mission. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He, being Jesus, then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus cares about all those that the world would rather throw to the side. He sees the helpless and he sees the hurting. He confronts the wicked and unjust. He confounds the wise in their own eyes because he loves the outcast. He loves the oppressed. He loves the afflicted. He loves those who are hurting. This is the compassion and the care of Jesus. There is no other king like King Jesus. There's none like him, full of compassion and ready to crush the oppressor. Jesus sees you when you're hurting. He sees you when you're frustrated. He sees you when you're mourning. He loves you and he wants to comfort you in those times of darkness. And if we're honest, this time of the year can really bring up some of those emotions. This time of year can bring loneliness and hurt. But Jesus sees you. And because he loves, because he's gracious, he wants to meet you in that. He wants to comfort you. He wants you to know that you are not alone. He's full of compassion and full of love. 
And though that is true now, one of the best parts of this reign of King Jesus that's going to happen in eternity is that it's not going to be temporary. That the King, King Jesus is going to be eternal. Look, we see this in verse 72 or chapter 72, verses five through seven. May the fear, may they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may the King be like rain that falls on cut grass, like spring showers that water the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days and well-being abound until the moon is no more. We see that, that Jesus's rule is going to be eternal. As long as the sun and the moon rise and fall, this kingdom, the kingdom of God is going to rule forever and ever for all generations. will get to see and experience the goodness of his grace. It's not going to be a kingdom that's here to get day and gone tomorrow. It's going to last. It's going to endure. It's going to be eternal. And sometimes we can, we were talking about this on Sunday night. Sometimes we can forget how, how time works, right? We live on earth for about 80 years, 90 years. And then we think that's a really long time, but forever is way longer than that. Eternity is way longer than that. Earthly kingdoms come and go. And some earthly kingdoms have lasted for a long time. They don't last forever. It may seem like forever, but this simply isn't the case. Like for example, the Roman empire, it lasted for about 1480 years. Right? That's a long time, nearly 1,500 years, but it's not forever. Right? The longest empire that ever ruled was the Pandian Empire of southern India, and it lasted for 1,925 years, nearly 2,000 years. But in view of eternity, in light of eternity, guess what? It's just a blip on the radar. It's just a blip on the radar. And even though these empires had it been established for nearly 2000 years. They didn't have the same ruler. They didn't have the same King, right? They had several Kings and rulers that would reign for a short time in that 1900 years. And then they would die. But here we read, not just about a kingdom that's going to last forever, but a King that rules and reigns forever in that eternal kingdom. One that will never cease. One that will continue forever and ever under the rule of King Jesus, the perfect King. And under Jesus' rule, there will be prosperity and peace and plenty. We won't have to wonder if Jesus wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. We won't have to worry about if it's a good day in the kingdom. Jesus' reign is going to be refreshing because every day is a good day. That's the imagery that we get in verse 6 when it talks about the king's rule being like rain on the grass and showers that water the earth. It's refreshing and it's good. Our world in the new heavens and the new earth will be free from all corruption. We'll be free from all pain, all heartache. Why? Because the wicked, those who are unrighteous, will not live in the kingdom. The new eternal kingdom will be ruled by the most righteous king and those who have trusted and placed their faith in him. Now those who reject Jesus won't be a part of the kingdom. So there will be no wickedness. There will be no, no tyrants. There will be nothing but the goodness of Jesus I don't even think I can imagine such a world, a perfect world, a world where we don't have to worry about who's going to be our ruler, a world where we never have to be concerned about any type of provision, a world that is refreshing to wake up to every morning, a world where every morning that we wake up, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a day that the Lord has made, a world where death is no more, illnesses cease, there is no struggle a world ruled by a good and perfect king, King Jesus. Not for one day, 
Not for one decade, not for a thousand years, but forever and ever we will know the goodness of the Lord. Don't you long for that day? I know I do. A perfect kingdom that knows no end, ruled by a perfect king who is gracious, just, loving, merciful. I wait for that day. I long for that day. And as we're celebrating this Advent season, thinking about the birth of Jesus, we look forward to the day where he comes again to establish this kingdom. So why is this rule and reign of Jesus going to be, so we know that the rule and reign of Jesus is going to be righteous and eternal, but what else can we expect from it? What else can we expect from the rule and reign of Jesus? Well, we see in verse 8 through 11, may he rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes near before him and enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coast and the islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow in homage to him. All nations serve him. So what we see here is we see the boundless rule of this king. All the people of earth are invited to pay homage to the king. All the people of the earth are invited to the kingdom. There's not one specific group, ethnicity, or language that will be excluded from the kingdom if they bow the knee to Jesus. And his rule is going to be all over the whole earth. I love the picture that's painted in verse 9, that the desert tribes will kneel before him. This may not mean a whole lot to us, right? But let's think about it for just a second. If people are living in the desert, they don't stay in one place for very long, right? They are constantly moving, trying to find new resources, trying to find water and food, right? They are nomadic, meaning that they don't live in and rule in any one piece of land. Rather, they aren't tied down to any specific point. But here we see that their allegiance is going to be to King Jesus. These desert dwellers who live nomadic lives even are invited into the kingdom if they worship Jesus. Unlike all the other kingdoms of the earth, the, the reach of this kingdom is, no, is not limited. Jesus' kingdom is going to extend to the outermost reaches of the earth. It's going to extend to the desert places from, from the river Euphrates on. Jesus' kingdom is not specific to a place. It is global in nature. He isn't a tribal king. He is king over all. And everyone who comes, everyone who wants to worship Jesus from the desert, from any nation, are united under the, the lordship of one king. That's the beauty of our faith. That's the beauty of Christianity, that people from all walks of life, people from every tribe and every nation, people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, educated or uneducated, all people are welcome into the kingdom. Why? Because we are united under the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What unifies us is not our background. What unifies us is Jesus what unifies us is our love and devotion to him. Jesus brings us into his kingdom because of who he is, not because of what we can bring to him. So we can all stand before him knowing that he is the reason that we are together. So what binds us and what unifies us is the worship, adoration, and grace of Jesus. We can link arms and know that his mercy, grace, compassion, and sacrifice is what brings us together. And we need to be mindful, though, and thoughtful about this when we say all are welcome 
This doesn't mean that we have a universalist thinking that all people at all times will be saved and live in the kingdom. Only those who honor the king, only those who pay homage to the king are welcome. Otherwise, if you're not worshiping the king, then you are his enemy. And as his enemy, you will not enter into his eternal reign. But if you bow down, if you worship, if you pay homage and trust Jesus, you will be saved. You will be invited into this kingdom. And here's the thing. All of history is moving towards this reality. And there are people in our lives who rebel against Jesus, whether it be a coworker, whether it be a family member, whether it be, you know, a spouse, whoever it is, we know people who are rebelling against Jesus. And we know those who have already been invited into the household. And so our duty as those who have been invited into the kingdom is to go to tell those people about King Jesus. We shouldn't just sit here and reap the benefits of the kingdom. We should go out and tell others that this kingdom is coming to show them how lovely and merciful and gracious this king is. We should warn them that if they don't bow the knee, they will be conquered and they will feel the wrath of this king. This is our calling for those of us who love Jesus to bring others to him, to show them, to tell them that about this king who rules over all. And we shouldn't be picky about who we tell. We should tell everyone, even those who we think won't believe, even those who are our enemies, even those who we may think will never believe, even those who we think may be too far gone. All are welcome if they bow down and worship Jesus. And we can never know. We can never forget how gracious God is that he saves those who are even the furthest away from him. If you just want to think about just some biblical characters real quick, if you just want to think about this guy named Paul in the new Testament, who was so far away from God, it seemed he was out killing and arresting people who believed in Jesus. And then Jesus met him on a road and saved his life and transformed the person that he is. And how arrogant can we be to think that this person sitting next to me, this person walking down this road, this person that I know things about is not going to repent and turn to Jesus. You never know. Your job is to tell them about his goodness and his graciousness. We don't know how they're going to respond and we're not responsible for how they respond, but we are responsible for telling them about him so that we can demonstrate the goodness and the grace of Jesus. Jesus loves to extend his grace to his creation. Listen to what this Psalm says in verses 12 through 14, for he will rescue the poor who cry out and the afflicted who have no helper. He will have pity on the poor and the helpless and save the lives of the poor. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious in his sight. You see here that there's a gracious rule that comes with his kingship. As we said earlier, this is one of the reasons that Jesus came to lift the chin of those who are oppressed to heal the ones who have been broken. There is compassion in the kingdom of Jesus. Those who feel alone can know the presence of the Lord. Those who are poor can know that they have wealth in the kingdom of God. Those who are lost are found. There is hope and grace at the foot of the cross. Like we read in Luke four earlier, Jesus is full of compassion. He acts with compassion. The ones who are hurt are not alone. There is no doubt that there is heartache and pain in the world that we live in today. 
There's oppression, violence, death, despair, heartache, and hopelessness. And I know that some of you feel that at this time of year. I know that there is heartache. I know that you feel overwhelmed. I know that there are some of you who feel like life is hopeless. I know that that this season is supposed to be full of joy, and yet you feel like you don't have any. All you feel is anxiety, pain, and grief. And I want you to know that in those feelings, in the despair and grief, you are not alone. Jesus hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. He is with you. He fights for you. He comforts you. He loves you. He has compassion on you. In times of deep pain and anguish, we often feel like God is so far off. We can feel like we've been left alone or abandoned. But in this passage and in the life of Jesus, we know that he isn't far away. I want us to look at the New Testament for just a second. Second Corinthians verses, verse 1, 3 through 7 says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also Christ, our comfort, overflows. We are afflicted. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the suffering, so you will share in the comfort. God is the God of all comfort. He desires to comfort us in our affliction, in our pain, in our suffering. And Jesus can do that. Why can he do that? Because he suffered too. He doesn't just have intellectual knowledge of suffering. He has experiential knowledge. Jesus knows what it is to be in pain. He knows what it is to lose a loved one. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows because he came and he lived a life on this earth. He endured the pain of the cross. He cried at the death of his friend Lazarus. He knows what it's like to suffer. And because he knows what it's like to suffer, he can comfort us in that suffering. He is sympathetic to our suffering. And we should know that it is good for us to run to him in any pain and in any suffering that we experience. We come to him and we get to see how good and gracious and glorious he is. Especially because where else can we find the fullness of comfort and grace? It's only in the arms of Jesus, the giver of great comfort, the great grantor of peace. And not only does he provide peace and comfort in his arms, but also he has provided you with a family. As a church body, we are to comfort and to encourage those who are facing the hardships of life. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, he says this, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We should be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We should be the shoulders of Jesus where people can cry on them and we can love on them. We can comfort them, demonstrate to them and to the world how awesome Jesus is. 
You see, we all long for the day where every tear will be wiped away, where all things will be made new, where we will see the goodness and the grace of Jesus in the fullness of who he is. And that's what David talks about in the next few verses. In verse 72, or chapter 72, verse 15 through 17, may he live long. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May prayer be offered for him continually. And he may, and may he be blessed all day long. May there be plenty of grain in the land. May it wave on the tops of mountains. May its crops be like Lebanon. May people flourish in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever as long as the sun shines. May his fame increase. May all nations be blessed by him and call him blessed. I can't help but listen to this picture of, of the mountains and, and the seas and the crops and, and just think about this is a pointing to the new creation of the new kingdom. We see prosperity and peace and blessings, crops growing on the top of mountains, cities flourishing, where, where things don't grow, things will grow in this new kingdom. You think about that. Where pain was, there will be grace. All things will be made new, not just the things of earth, but we will be mended as well. Just like Jesus in his resurrected body was an example of the new body that we will receive. There is also a new creation coming too often. We forget that God's ultimate plan isn't that we would dwell in heaven or some ethereal place in the sky, but that God's plan for his creation is that it is remade. That is that his good creation is restored to its former glory and that he dwell with us on earth. Our destination is a recreated or renewed earth, beautiful mountains, flowering fields of grain that the whole earth will look as it, as it was intended to look in the garden. Everything that we enjoy about earth and the beauty here will be amplified and magnified when all is recreated. That is what we get to look forward to. There will be no hunger because the fields will be overflowing with grain. There will be no death because we have inherited eternal life. There will be no aching joints or hurting backs because we have been made whole. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 25. He says this, for I consider that the present sufferings or that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. That the creation itself oh, for cre- the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage and the decay of the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this, we have now in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees. Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. 
We eagerly wait for it with patience. We eagerly wait for the day when all is going to be restored. We wait for the fullness of God's blessing to be restored. We wait for all things to be made new. We wait, we pray, and hope for the fullness of God's glory to be revealed to us. We wait for the new creation. And in this new creation, Jesus' name will be famous. His name will endure forever. So though the night may come, we know that joy comes in the morning. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by who Jesus is and what he has done. And the response to Jesus' rule and reign is celebration. Should We should worship and praise him. And that's how the psalmist closes out this, this psalm with the doxology, giving all the glory to God. Psalm 72, verse 18 through 20. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wonders. Blessed be his glorious name forever. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, son of Jesse, are concluded. We see here a doxology, a giving of praise. The God alone is the God who does wonders. And what's more wonderful than a recreated heaven and earth? Well, right now, as we're sitting here, what's the most wonderful thing is when God saves sinners. When the proclamation of the gospel changes the hearts of men. He alone is the one who does this mighty work. And we, as his followers, are the ones who need to, sh- to proclaim the good news of this kingdom. It was at the cross of Jesus that God's glory was on the fullest display. It was through his death and resurrection of, that the enemies of God are now called to worship him as friends. And here's the deal. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, I just want you to know that right now you are an enemy of his kingdom. What that means is that you are still living in rebellion against him. And that means that you aren't an invitation. You aren't invited into this perfect kingdom, but the invitation is there. If you acknowledge that you are hopeless in your sin and you have no way to save yourself and you believe that Jesus is a son of God who came to redeem you, then you will be saved. Now remember being a part of this kingdom doesn't mean that you live your life in subject to him following after him, obeying his commandments, loving him above all else. That's the invitation to come into this eternal kingdom, to, to bow the knee to Jesus. Now, if you have already been called into this kingdom, it's time that you do the work that God has set you out to do, to tell others about the good news of Jesus, to praise him and talk about him and show people the goodness of this king, to do good works that honor the king in your daily life. He is the good and gracious king who loves those who honor him. He is the best king to love and to serve. He is irreplaceable and incomparable. Find your rest, hope, purpose, love, comfort, and joy in him, in this king today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your love and your compassion. Thank you that you do not leave us alone, but you come to us. You came to us. You donned flesh to live among us. And in that living among us, you sympathize with us in our hurt. That you sympathize with us in our pain. And that you live the perfect example of submission to the Father. Jesus, we just want to thank you for the perfect life that you lived. Thank you for the blood that was shed. Praise you for the resurrection that in you and you alone, we can have new life. 
in you and you alone, we can come into this beautiful kingdom of God. Knowing that you are worthy of all honor and praise. This morning, Lord, I just want to give my life as an offering to you. And I pray that there, everybody in here would want to pay tribute and homage to you because of how great and glorious you are. And I pray, Lord, that as we sing this song, as we wrap up, Lord, that we would be reminded of your goodness and your grace, your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.